Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're continuing, of course, our study of the, this Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We started last week, and we got the background, saw the overview, the history, where 1 Samuel fits in the Bible, how it fits together. We looked and talked about the nation of Israel and up to the time of Samuel, and then how uh, the nation of Israel turned away and how, and how God is going to raise up this man named Samuel, and then we'll see Saul and David, and we'll see all those things. So uh, we begin this week, and we'll, we'll, we'll go verse by verse. If you remember from last week, we said that in the letter of the Romans, Paul writes and says that the things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our instruction. Sometimes people say, well, why would you study 1 Samuel or Ruth or Esther or those books, Old Testament books? Why wouldn't we just keep studying like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts and all that? Well, over the years, we've studied all of them, but it's really important. There are a lot of things in the Old Testament that we can need to know and apply in our lives even now. When you think about 1 Samuel, we're going to see it begins, it's really a transition book from the time of the judges, which were deliverers, which were leaders, to the time of the kings. The last judge is Samuel, and that's what we're going to see. And then the first of the kings of Saul, and then, of course, David comes after that. This is one of the most famous books in the Bible. A lot of you know the stories. When you look through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, there's the story of David and Goliath and the battle with the Philistines and King Saul and King David. And so there's a lot of great great things there, great things that we knew, especially as you studied them maybe when you were growing up. When we look at this, three people stand out, as we said last week. Samuel is the final judge, and we look at him and see him as a faithful man. We wanted to look at that and say, what we want to do is be faithful men and women and live for Jesus Christ. Then we saw Saul as the first king who started good but finished badly. And, and when we looked at that, we say, look, we want to be people who start good, but we want to finish good as well. We want to keep on living and growing all the way to the end, living, uh, walking worthy of the calling which God has called us. And then the third one that we stands out is David, and he is the second king. And it's what, what's amazing about David, now we know a lot of things about him, but in 1 Samuel, in the first book that we're going to be looking at, what did we see him as he trusted God in his life? He waited on God's plan in God's time and in God's way, because he knew his, he was already anointed as the second king of Israel, but Saul was still alive, and he said, I'm going to wait in, in exactly God's timing and in God's way. And I think for our lives, we look at the same sort of thing. There's so many things we wish could happen right now, or we think should happen now, or this should, and we just have to trust God in our lives and rest knowing that he's working all things according to the counsel of his will in his time and in his way. Well, as we begin, you know, when we think about babies, babies, they're beautiful. If you, if you go back into that nursery, there's some little babies in there, and it is so beautiful when you see that God brings them in the world. I think probably one of the greatest things of my life is seeing the birth of Catherine and Sarah my two girls. Well, this woman, I mean, this morning, we're going to see a woman who wants a baby. She wants a baby really badly. She wants a son. She's barren. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and this time in Israel, if a, if a woman didn't have a baby, uh, she might, people might say, there might be something wrong with you. Maybe God's not blessing you. Maybe God's not taking care of you, or else you would have a baby. Well, she wants a son, and there's, we're going to find there's great confusion and turmoil in the household. This man has two wives. We talked about it last week, and they don't get along with each other. There's great turmoil there. One has at least four kids. The other one doesn't have any, and we see great problems. It's really a picture of the nation. The nation is in confusion as well. And we find that God is going to use this woman to bring a son into the world whose name is Samuel, who's going to be the last judge, and is going to 
pave the way for the kings, and we're going to see that. The book of Judges, this time period. Now, when we say Judges, if you remember, there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then there's Joshua and Judges. And the book of Judges shows this time period in which the nation of Israel turned away from God. God would raise up leaders. Sofertim is the Hebrew word. It means judges. Not judges like wearing a, a robe and, and, and being in a courtroom, but judges who, who deliver. And, and so we're at the time of the Judges. Even though uh, we got to another book called First Samuel, the time of the Judges is still going on, the book of Judges and Ruth, that's the time in the first part of Samuel. Samuel is the last judge. And so when you think about it, here's what was going on. Judges 21, 25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what's going on. And so as we see this, we see a nation, people, families, all doing their own thing, doing what they think is right in their own eyes. The nation has turned away from God. We can think about our nation and we've seen slowly from the 60s, uh, 70s, 80s, that into the 2000s now, and, and then rapidly we see our nation continues to turn away from God. And in that same way, individually, we can do the same thing. We can trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and have eternal life. And then slowly we begin to do things or move away from the truths. Maybe we used to study the Bible. Maybe we used to go to church. And then we just slide away. And it can happen so easily. As we look at 1 Samuel, the nation is in a spiritual low. But God is working because he's going to raise up a man that is Samuel. Now, let me remind you of the background just so you can understand. We talked last week about Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the very first 11 chapters of the Bible. Adam and Eve are created, the fall, then there's the flood, and then there's a division, and there's people scattered over the world. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God picks one man. His name is Abram, which means big daddy, high father. It means you have a lot of kids. He was 75 years old. He had no kids. God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And so God came to Abram and said, I want you to leave where you're living. I want you to go to what we call the land of Canaan, which is modern day Israel. And he says, I want you to go there. I'm going I'm to show you a land that I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make a great nation come from you. And the savior of the world is going to come through you. And so Abram, Abraham believed God and he left and he came and, and what, that's what we call the nation of Israel. And so Abraham's son, he had a son named Isaac. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons and Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel. And so Israel's 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And everything was going good until Joseph ended up going down to Egypt and then this big famine came. God raised up Joseph to be powerful in the nation of Egypt and the, the, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all came down to Egypt, all 75 of them. That's all there were, 75, and they were in Egypt and everything was going good until a new Pharaoh rose to power that did not know Joseph and before you knew it, they put him in slavery and over 400 years, there were a lot of Jewish people born but they were in slavery for 400 years and then God raised up Moses. And Moses had a brother named Aaron. And Aaron and Moses had a sister named Miriam. And God raised up Moses and Aaron to come in and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He didn't want to do it. Ten plagues. They came out parting of the Red Sea. They crossed over. They went to Mount Sinai. They got the law. I mean, everything's going good. They finally get into the promised land. Moses dies. And a guy by the name of Joshua brings him into the promised land. They cross the, the, the Jordan River. They have a victory over Jericho. Everything's going great. And they take the land and they divide it up and everything looks good and then they turn away from God and they begin to turn and worship false gods and do everything else so God lets enemies come in and conquer them 
And every time an enemy comes to conquer them, they cry out to God. God raises up a judge, a deliverer. The deliverer leads them into battle. They have a victory. They win. They conquer their enemy. They're back in the land. Everything's wonderful. And then they do the same thing over and over again, 13 times in the book of Judges. There are a number of judges, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Othniel. One of the most famous judges is Samson. And the last judge is Samuel. This time, the nation of Israel is in trouble. Their enemy is the Philistines. And God's going to raise up Samuel to help them have victory. And we're going to see what happens. So this is where we are in the book. So at this time, though, I want you to understand that there was a the most important person, and let me put, give it to you here, is the priest. There is a man named Eli. He's the priest. He's really, really old. He may be close to 90 years old. He's really fat. The Bible actually says he was fat. It says it. He's a big, fat man. He can't see very well. He's really old. He's the priest of Israel. He's the high priest. And so if you wanted to do offer sacrifices and everything, you come to the tabernacle, not the temple, because the temple hadn't been built yet. You come to this tabernacle. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to show you what the tabernacle looked like, how it all fit together. But if you come to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices, Eli has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they're evil men, very evil and we're going to see that. So the most important person at this time was the priest because if you, as you lived as a Jewish person, if you sinned or if you did anything, you had to bring a sacrifice. And there's the priest, Eli, handling everything. Now his sons now do everything because he's so old and he can't see. So he's left it to his sons. And we're going to see this morning that they are very evil men. And so this is where we are. Now what I want you to understand is the most important person has been the priest, but it's going to change. Now the most important person is going to be the prophet. And the prophet did two things. The prophet gave God's messages, and we'll talk more about that later. They also, once the kings came into power, once they became kings, they kept the kings in check. They, they would come and they would tell kings certain things. If you remember when David sinned, it was the prophet Nathan who came to David and said, you are the man. So prophets were very powerful people. They spoke the word of God. And so we're going to see that it's going to move from basically the priest to the prophet because Samuel is a prophet. In fact, if you look at Samuel's life, he's a prophet and a priest and a judge, which is very unusual. So most people had no offices. He actually has three offices. He's a prophet because he gives the word of God. He's a priest because later on, we, he's from the family of, of, of Levi and from the priesthood. And he's a judge. And he, that a deliverer and a decider. So we'll talk more about that. Now, I have a, a card for you. If, if you picked it up when you came in, this is what it looks like. We had it out front, got it on the table, out uh, the counter out there, but also the table. And it's just a card giving you information. And what you can do is just put it in your Bible, First Samuel, and follow along as we go. And it gives you more information. If you look at it, it tells us that we don't know who wrote First Samuel, but it was written most likely around 900 B.C. Gives us a little idea from the time of the judges to the kings. Gives you an overview of the book, gives you some of the events of the book, and then on the flip side of the card, it actually divides the book for you. First seven chapters deal with Samuel as the final judge. Then there's a transition. Saul becomes the first king of Israel, and we see his life and how he doesn't do very well. And then the next person becomes David. David does not become the king until second Samuel, but this is what happens. David's in contact, and, and so that's the book. And so if you didn't get the card when you came in, please get it. Before you leave, you can use it. It helps you when you study, and there's 
a lot of good things there. Now, here's something we brought up last week I want you to remember. That we see in this book, there is a transition from the time of the judges, a deliverer, to the time of the kings, a ruler. That's really a foreshadow of Jesus because when Jesus came the first time, he came to die on the cross to pay for sin. He came as the deliverer, the savior, the one to deliver us and save us. When he comes the second time, he comes as the ruler, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So that's just a little flow and a little idea of it. Let's look at the book. We, we, last week, we just kind of touched on it. This week, we're going to look at the first 18 verses. We'll go as quickly, really as quickly as we can. It's a narrative, but there's some things in there that you need to know. So we're going to get the background. And so let's look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 1. It says, there was this certain man from the city of Ramathin Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. And then, of course, it lists his daddy and his granddaddy and his great-granddaddy. It just takes him all the way back. Now, he's a particular person living at this time, and he lives in a city which is called, it's got a long name there, Ramathim Zophim, but that's the same as Ramah. And if on this map, if you remember, there's Jerusalem, there's Ramah, there's the city they lived in. Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle is. That's the where Eli is. That's where the priesthood is. It says that, uh, that Elkanah was living in basically in the hill country of Ephraim. He's an Ephraimite, so he's living in this region. The temple the tabernacle is at Shiloh. It doesn't get to Jerusalem until King David is the king. He moves the tabernacle there, and then he has his son uh, Solomon build the temple. So that's why it's at Shiloh at this point in time. We find from First Corinthians, excuse me, from First Chronicles chapter six that this man named Elkanah was of the priestly lineage. He was from the tribe of Levi. So he actually served some in the tabernacle. That means if he had any sons they eventually would be Levites and they would serve. In that day and time, if you were a descendant of Aaron, you could be a priest. You served from age 30 to 50, and then you didn't retire. You just didn't do the day-to-day operation. You just did other things. If you're a Levite, you started at age 25. There was no end time for the Levites, the best that I could find, and they just helped the priest. So this man is from that tribe, and we'll see more about him as we go on. Notice what it says. He had two wives. We could stop right there and say, well, you're in trouble. Yeah, because you are. You know, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Pinnahah. And Pinnahah had children, but Hannah had no children. So he gives us a little information, and the very first thing we see is, why does this man have two wives? We already know that you're not supposed to have two wives. We already go back that when you have two wives, that's contrary to the Scripture. The Bible tells us back in Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You can't be one flesh with two different people. There's conflict in this home. We already know, and as we look throughout the Scripture, anytime people violate Scripture, especially when they violate Scripture with husbands, wives, and things, there's always conflict, always problems. We're going to find that he's got two wives, and they don't get along at all. And that home is great conflict. And there's one wife that has children. She has at least four. She has at least two, two sons and two daughters. And she makes fun of the wife, Hannah, who doesn't have any children. And they argue and they fuss and they're called rivals. So you know in that home, it was not a good situation. In fact, if you look at verse 6, it says, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly. So here are the two women. One is named Hannah. That means grace. It comes from the Hebrew word hen, which means grace, and penaha, which is coral, which is like a precious stone. And so they, there's problems in this family. And it just if you just read it, it just basically says there's two wives. One has children. One does not have children. Well, what happens? We'll go quickly through this. It says, now this man... 
that's Elkanah, would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, here they are, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests to the Lord there. Now, what we find from the Bible is this. In Deuteronomy 16, every Jewish man, three times a year, had to go to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices. They had to go at Pentecost, they had to go, excuse me, they had to go uh, at Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those were three different times. One was in the spring, one was in the summer, and one was in the fall. So every Jewish man knew at one time they had to go up there and offer a sacrifice. This is what Elkanah is doing. It says yearly he would make a sacrifice to the Lord at Shiloh. He would do that. And so that's what, men, that's what the men had to do. And so it just tells us that he did that. And, all, and then he gives us information. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests there. Now remember I told you who they are. They're evil, and we're going to talk about it in just a second. So picture this. Here's old man Eli, who is well-respected and a good man, but not a good father. And he's there, and his sons are doing the sacrifices and doing the work at the temple. That's their job. It says every year, Elkanah would go up there, bring a sacrifice. We'll talk more about what it is in just a second. How evil were these boys? Turn to 2 Samuel, just turn your page, a couple of pages if you're like mine, and turn and look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Look what it says about these boys. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. The word worthless means sons of Belial. It actually means that they're evil. It almost means like they're of the devil. That's what the word, if you call somebody a son of Belial, you would say you're of the devil. That's what you're saying. And this, the Bible says they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, can you imagine that they're offering the sacrifices for God? They're supposed to be God's representative. They're supposed to take what man gives and takes it to God, and they don't even know the Lord. Second, they, they messed with the sacrifices. At verse 17, says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for these men despised the offering of the Lord. We're going to get to it next couple of weeks, but when people would bring the sacrifices instead of offering them to God, they took them themselves. Can you imagine taking a sacrifice offered to God and you take it yourself? That's what they did. And then the third thing was really, really horrible. Verse 22, it says, Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing in Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. They had sex with the women who helped in the tabernacle. So they're really bad. They didn't know the Lord. They misused the sacrifices. They had sex with women. So they're bad. It doesn't say it there here. It says it later on. So this man would go up and he'd offer the sacrifices. Now look what happens when he does that. It says, when he came, with verse 4, when the day came that Elkanah would sacrifice, he would give portions to Pinnaha, his wife, and her sons, at least two, and her daughters, at least two. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Now think about it. He gives her a double portion. Why? He's trying to make up for it. Now I want you to th think about this. What was he offering? It was called a thank offering or a gift offering. And what they would do is they would bring an animal and they would offer it and the priest would kill it. Then they would cut it in two. They would put it up on the altar. They would take part of it and the priest got to eat it. 
They would take the other part and you would take it back to your family and it'd be like a picnic. You'd come back with the sacrifice and everybody would eat it. When he comes back, he gives a portion to Hannah and then he gives a double portion to Hannah. Well, that probably didn't help the family either, did it? What do you think about that one? And so things are not going really good. And so he's trying to make her feel better because she didn't have any children. See, sometimes we... We want things that we don't get. We want them right now. We may say, "I want to, I want to get married. I've never, I want to be. I've always wanted to be married. I never, I never, I want to get married." And I don't know why God doesn't hurry up and and let me find somebody to marry. Or we say something like, "I want to get out of school. I don't understand why it's taking me so long." And, and you know, I don't know if I got enough money to go to the next semester. I want to hurry up and do that. Or we say things like, "I want to find a good job. The job I got right now is not very good. I'm looking for a job. Why don't God help me get a good job?" Or maybe I'm sick, and you know, I, I go to the doctor, and they say, "We're going to." to really check this out. And you go, why, not, why don't I get well? Why does this happen? Why does it keep going on? Why can't God do something? And see, that's the way Hannah felt. Why doesn't God give me a baby? I want a baby. Everybody else has babies. I look around, everybody else like, she got four of them. Why don't I have any? It doesn't seem right. So what did he do? Every, he would offer the sacrifice and then he would bring some to her and then he would give Hannah four, a double portion Double portion, trying to make her feel better. Well, look what happened. Her rival, however, would provoke her to jealousy, broke her bitterly to uh, irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. We see the consequences. The consequences of violating the word of God. They've got a family that is in conflict. And this house just reflects the, the, the nation, what the nation is going through. We see the same thing in our nation. When people have moved away from the truth, getting all the way back in the early 60s when we took prayer out of school and we started removing everything and said, oh, you can't say that because it has God's name in it and all that. And before you know it, our whole nation has turned away from God as a nation. Doesn't mean people have, but as a nation, and we see what the consequences are there, what it's like when we live in a country that's moving away from the truths of the Bible. Well, notice it says in verse 7, it happened year after year as often she went up to the house of the Lord that she would provoke her. And so she wept and would not eat. It was just a sad time. So what did Elkanah do? Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, He's saying, aren't I better than 10 sons? You know what she might say to him? No, you're not better than 10 sons. You're not. I want a baby. I got you. I, I mean, you're okay, but you got somebody else too. And there's all kinds of problems here and things would be better if I had a baby. I want you to think about it. She's saying she wants a son to be equal with a rival and she wants a son to be blessed by the Lord and she wants a son to love and to hold. So this is where she is. And so she does, as a lot of us do, as in most cases when all else fails, what do we do? We finally pray. Instead of, you know, the first thing we should do is whenever things happen, we should go straight to the Lord, be anxious for nothing, everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our request be made known to God. But now it's happened year after year after year, and finally she says, I'm going to go to the Lord. So verse 9, and I'll go very quickly, Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. The word temple there actually has the idea of the tabernacle. And so he's sitting there watching, and she comes up to the tabernacle. Now, she can't go all the way in. I'll, t- well, I'll show you some drawings next week. And she comes and starts to pray. Look what happens. 
She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she made a vow. And she said, O Lord of hosts, if you'll indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, and you'll give your maidservant, look what she's asking for, give your maidservant a son, then I will, what's she going to do? I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. What in the world is she talking about? What, what does this fit? So she's coming boldly. She is. That's what we're supposed to do. We don't make it the last thing we do. Make it the first thing we do. Come boldly to the throne of grace that we can find help and grace in the time of need. And so she makes a vow. Look, notice verse 11. She made a vow. Now, you've got to be careful when you make a vow. Because Jesus said, be real careful when you make a vow. In fact, you don't need to make a vow. You just need to let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to say, I swear to God that's going to happen. Just say yes and no. Your character and your word should be sufficient. Jesus said, you don't have to make vows. In fact, he says, don't make those kind of vows. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But she's made a vow. And we're going to talk more about a vow next time. Because when she made this vow, her husband, Elkanah, could have canceled out the vow. If he wanted to, we'll talk more about that next week. But she makes this vow, and she says, if you will give me a son, I will do two things. I want you to see what the two things are with the son. First, she said, I'll give him to the Lord, and I'll make him a Nazarite. She says, a razor will not come to his head. I'm going to explain this real quickly. But when she said, I'll give him to the Lord, she's actually saying, I'm going to take this boy, and I'm going to bring him back up to the tabernacle, and I'm going to let him serve here as a boy. We already know that age 25 or 30, he could serve because he's from the tribe of Levi. She says now he's going to serve. And then she says a razor will never come to his head. That's a Nazarite. Now, let me explain something to you. You've heard of Nazarene. You've heard of Nazareth. Nazarene are people from the city of Nazareth. Jesus was called Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus was from Nazareth. That's the city. This is Nazarite. This is a vow. This is something Jewish people could do. You could make a vow for 30 days, 60 days, 100 days. You could make it for a year. You could do whatever you wanted to. When you made the vow, you offered a sacrifice. You took a razor. You cut all your hair off, and you did not. Your hair started growing back. You did not touch it. You did not drink anything dealing with wine or grapes, and you did not touch any dead bodies. That's what a Nazarite vow was, and you did that for whatever length of time. It could be a year. It could be a half a year. It could be two years. It could be your whole life. She's going to make it for his whole life, and at the end of the vow, you'd come back to the priest. They would take a razor. They would shave all your hair off. They would offer it as a sacrifice, and you start back with your life. She says, I want my boy from the time that he is born to be a Nazarite. He never cuts his hair. He's always going to be a Nazarite. Now you say, do we know any Nazarites in the Bible? Yeah, you know Nazarites. How about Samson? Samson never cut his hair. He was a Nazarite. How about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a Nazarite. He never cut his hair. And now Samuel is going to be a Nazarite. Now can you see the sacrifice here? This is a boy she's wanted all her life, and as soon as he's born, or when he gets just a touch older, she's going to give him to the priest, and he's not going to live with her. That's a sacrifice, but that's what she prays. Now, watch what happened, and we'll go really, really fast. It says now, at verse 12, it came about that as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. And for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so... Eli thought she was drunk. Listen, she's just talking, but it's not, no words aren't coming out. She's just, 
and he sees her, and he thinks she's drunk. I mean, how many other people have come to the tabernacle drunk? I mean, look what the world is like, and he thinks this woman is drunk because she's moving her lips, but she's not saying anything. So then Eli, in verse 14, said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put wine away from yourself. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm, a, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I'm not drunk, neither wine nor strong drink. I've just poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maid a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of great concern and provocation. She says, I, I'm not drunk. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just giving it all I got. I'm just, I'm just pouring my heart out to the Lord. I just wasn't saying anything. I just, I just let it come out. And look what he says. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. He says, go in peace. May God grant you. Eli implied that the prayer would be granted. She's actually saying, wait a minute, he just told me I'm going to have a baby. That's what he said. He said, may the God of Israel grant your request. That's what she thinks. And look at verse 18. Then she said, let your maidservant find, find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate. She went back to eat, and her face was no longer sad. You know why? She believes God's going to answer the prayer and that she's going to have a son. And guess what? She's right. She's going to have a son, the one she's waited for. And his name is Samuel. Samuel, ask of God. The name El means God. And she asked for God, asked for God for this baby. And he's going to come, and he's going to be set apart to God, and he's going to be a Nazarite from the time he's born. And we're going to see what happens to this boy and what happens to this family and what happens to all of them. So let me give you some applications quickly just to close it all, and then we'll pray. So first of all, think about this. Let, let's not let the world shape us, because we see that's what's happened. Every man, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel, so everybody did whatever they wanted to do. And this is what happens in our culture. If we're not careful, everybody says, well, what's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is right for you, and I've got my own right, and I've got my own way, and nobody can tell me I'm wrong, and of course, I can tell you you're wrong, but anyway, I'm not wrong. And the bottom line is, that's what we see in our culture. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Listen, we do not want to be conformed to this world, but we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to put the Word of God in our brains. We want to live righteously and godly. We say we want to live in a way that is contrary to a fallen culture, but is based on the Word of God. And we have to make that decision. We have to make that decision because the world is trying to shape us. The culture is trying to shape us. You've got to stand strong for Christ right now. The second thing is, let us understand that when we violate the Word of God, there are going to be consequences. We think about this family, there's all kind of issues going on. Why? Because they violated the Word of God. And when you look at the nation of Israel, there's all kind of issues going on. Why? Because they violated the Word of God. The third thing, let's make our request known to God. Don't let it be the last thing that we do. Let it be the first thing that we do. Let us, let us go, let us be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let our requests be made known to God. Hannah goes straight to God and asks the prayer, and he answers it. And what we've got to do is, uh, it's okay to talk to other people, but go straight to God and say, God, this is, what I, this is my heart. This is what I want. <clears throat> this is what I care about. This is what I think. This is why I'm bothered. We have to trust him that he's going to answer our prayers. Now, let me tell you, he always answers them. Sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's wait. But we got to trust him. And last but not least on this, keep our word. 
Keep our word. If you say it, do it. Let our yes be yes and no be no. Let's be men and women of character. Let's keep our word. If we make a vow, it's better not to make a vow, but if you make a vow, better keep it. Okay? If we make a vow, let's keep it. But we don't have to make vows. Jesus said, just let your yes be yes and no be no. Let your character stand.